Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me today. Glad you're listening. Happy you're here. Well, this is uh, going to be part two of Ray Dalio. And this, in this section, he really talks more about populism, the causes of populism, and political compromise, uh, among other things. But he's, he's really talking more about the political system here and how he's seen this type of thing occur multiple times in history and how it leads to all kinds of problems. And he's going to talk about some of those problems. And, uh, you know, this part... I find myself disagreeing with a little bit more, and so I'll probably have a little bit more dissent in in this section. Uh, but I think it's I think it's valuable what he's talking about. I think Ray Dalio is on to something with his uh, all the content that he's created around uh, the economy, history, uh, debt, debt cycles, things like that. So. Um, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to continue uh, critiquing and and discussing his uh, his ideas because I think they're they're certainly really good ideas, uh, very well thought out, and uh, and I think you know need to be discussed. I think they need to be listened to and and argued with. You know, although there's nobody really arguing in this uh, in these segments that I have, so. I'll do that. I'll play that role. I'll be the guy who argues against Ray Dalio. Not about everything, but on some things. The production is now going based on ideological and political considerations. In other words, I talked about self-sufficiency. If you look at China will be self-sufficient. The United States will be self-sufficient. Multinational companies are going to worry about where they're going to have trade and so on. So the notion of how do I deal with self-sufficiency, we're in a world where ideological and political forces are allocating resources more than economic. Given the uh, risks in the world, they want to be self-sufficient. And similarly, the United States wants to be more self-sufficient and other countries are wanting to be more self-sufficient because they're worried about being cut off. I thought this was an interesting opening um, to this discussion because I, I thought of something completely different when he was talking about this. I think what he's talking about is um, countries are looking at these, these problems, these geopolitical problems, and, they're, and what he's saying is there's problems with supply chain and things like that. And, and this international division of labor is not, we're not going to be able to utilize it the way we thought we would. And countries now are turning inward and investing inward. But what I took this to mean, and I, and I think that's probably true. I mean, some people call it isolationism. Um, I don't think it's as extreme as isolationism, but I think people are looking at wow, you know, if we need chips, we may not be able to rely on Taiwan or China or Indonesia or wherever they're made uh, because of COVID, because of COVID policies in other countries and uh, various policies that threaten those supply chains. But the way I kind of took it 
was because he, he first says, you know, resources or capital is being allocated based on ideology. And I think that's true. I think there's another truism to that. And I see this in the energy industry. You know, the, the government is heavily involved in deciding what our sources of energy are going to be. And they've invested, quote unquote, invested. Really, it's nothing but subsidies. They're paying companies like GE and Siemens and and others. I mean, it's not just those two uh, to uh, provide, you know, wind turbines and um, solar panels and power plants that that run off solar and wind and things of that nature. And so, to me, that is a that is a capital allocation that is uh, driven by ideology. In other words, there's no there's no real understanding of you know the cost associated with that. It's just well, the climate's, you know, the oceans are going to boil and the climate is, you know, going to kill us all. So, you know, we need renewable energy. And there's no real thought or understanding to the engineering consequences of these decisions, which is typical for, you know, political organizations. It's the nature of the beast. Capitalism is a fabulous way of allocating resources to get rich, but it gets people at different rates. They get very big differences and also produces a lot of debt. That's part of the capitalist process. And so when there's this large debt and when there's a large wealth gap, people feel disenfranchised. So it happened in Europe, you know, four major democracies chose autocracies because of the fight between the left and the right. Then they called it fascism and communism. But those two, the right and the left and how to deal with it has always happened. So you go back to the French Revolution. In all of those cases, there were moderates. There were people in the middle who said, we have issues and we have to deal with those types of issues. But the polarity becomes greater. When the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. Capitalism is a fabulous way for allocating resources and for getting rich. Um, But... Debt is not a feature of capitalism. Capitalism is really very simple. It's, 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 I think people make, you know, because of government's involvement and these crony companies and stuff, I think people have kind of created in their minds a version of capitalism that's really not capitalism. You know, some people call it crapitalism or crony capitalism. But capitalism at its core is just, uh, the mixing of capital and labor to increase productivity, to make more goods and services available for more and more people. That's what capitalism is. And wealth creation is, is the actual production of that stuff. It, it's really not money. Wealth is standard of living. Another word for wealth is standard of living. We've, we've, come, to, we've come to associate wealth with money and um, and net worth and things like that, but that's not really what makes a country wealthy. Um, what makes a country wealthy is that it produces a lot of goods and services, and the people that are living in that economy then have better lives because of all that production. And to the extent there's excess production, we can trade with other countries. But debt is not per se, a feature of capitalism. That's not, that's not what capitalism is about. 
That's what governments are about. Governments are about creating debt because creating debt expands the money supply. And when you expand the money supply and you have a lot of debt, effectively you get to pay back the debt with cheaper money, with money that buys fewer things in the, in the real economy. So, I, you know, I take a little issue with what he was talking about here, but and as far as the wealth gap, I mean, he's kind of alluding to the wealth gap. He's saying some people get fabulously rich and then others don't. It doesn't trickle down. Well, trickle down, you know, wealth is not distributed and, and it doesn't trickle down, okay? It's created. And what, what wipes wealth out is the debauchery of the, of the currency, okay? The undermining of the currency by, by diluting holders of that currency. That's what, that's what creates poverty. That's what destroys wealth. And that's what we have going on in America. You know how it is. How did Donald Trump get elected? What was the characteristics of the population? You can go back and you can see that. So you have fighters on both sides who are not not want to compromise. They don't want, it's considered weak. And if you're in the middle, you will have to pick a side and fight. There's the loss of the middle. What we need right now, in my opinion, is a strong middle. You need a strong middle, but you also have a political system where you have two parties. And because of those two parties, there's a tendency to become more and more extreme because those extremities on each part of their party become a stronger sort of win a nomination. Measures of extremism is that roughly speaking, about 30% of the population is rather extreme of the right and about 15% is extreme of the left. Of course, that represents then the majority of the Republican Party is in that category. And then a very important part of the Democratic Party is, is on that. the left. Yet the majority of Americans are, are in, the middle. in the middle. So you still have, given those numbers, they add up to maybe 40 or 45% of the population. Well, but we don't have a party in the middle. You don't have a middle. Yeah, okay. So we don't have a middle. I mean, I understand his point. And maybe we do meet, need more people in the middle, so to speak. But the real difference, the, the thing I want to point out, and he mentions there, there's roughly 30% that are extreme on the right and 15% that are extreme on the left. And I'm not going to take issue with those numbers. I don't know what those numbers are. But here's the bigger difference. Here's the thing I think Ray Dalio is missing. The, the extreme on the left because of their institutional presence and because of their you know, academia presence and, and just the fact that they control so many institutions and they're willing to use government. This is the key point. They're willing to use government force to, um, to coerce, to control, to otherwise make miserable both the middle and the 30% extreme right. You know, what, what you see, like when Donald Trump was in power uh, as president, he wasn't using the government against, you know, the, uh, the middle or in the other half of America. He wasn't doing that. He had policies that, uh, you know, like he wanted to s- shut down the border crossings and things like that. But he wasn't using the, the legal system or using the justice system or using any part of government to otherwise uh, coerce or subjugate in some way the middle, the left middle or whatever you want to call it, the middle 
and the left. He wasn't doing that. But the difference, but the left seems more than okay with that. They seem, they seem okay with using the justice system against their political enemies. I mean, look at January 6th. What really happened on January 6th? A bunch of people marched around. Yeah, they pushed and shoved and broke some windows and stuff. And, and maybe, maybe 15% of the people there were, that were there that did that. But the vast majority of people that were there did nothing other than walk around and hold a flag or hold a sign or whatever. But many of those people are in jail, even today, even more than two years later, are still in jail awaiting trial. And that never happened under Trump. So I think the big difference, I mean, I agree with what he's saying, that there's no middle, you know, that we're becoming polarized. But I think what people are really upset with is, at least on the right side of the aisle, you know, are upset that the left uses the government against them, you know, prosecutes them, um, harasses them with the IRS or other, you know, uh, arms of the, of the government to coerce people. I mean, look at, look at what happened to COVID. I mean, they tried to force people to take an experimental drug over something that a lot of people didn't think was that harmful. And so, you know, Trump just wasn't doing those kinds of things. And I think that's, that's the big difference. Investing in education and infrastructure through history have been the most important ingredient. You can't make better investments than in education and infrastructure. They pay and they produce a better, a more broad-based prosperity. But we don't do that because of certain reasons, the Constitution and the like. But in order to do that, you need a platform of the middle. You need a spokesman, I think, that draws people away from the extremes toward the middle. If you did have a third political party, and I'm not saying that's practical, but I would say then you could have a platform and then you could have somebody that you could look at or candidates that say, I am for the middle. And that would help to neutralize because Otherwise, history has shown you go to greater and greater extremism and then you yeah. have the battle. And I think that that's what we should be afraid of most is that those extremists in a battle having a type of civil war, which I think there's a reasonable chance of when I say. OK, I, well, I disagree with quite a bit of this. I mean, the reality is compromise. Anytime you're dealing with principles and you have a compromise, uh, there's a saying that any compromise between food and poison results in death. And it's the same thing with principles. If you have a if you have a principle that has to do with liberty or limited government and limited taxes and freedom, you know, entrepreneurship and things like that and and all of a sudden you see the government really attacking those kinds of things, you know, that that's that's a that's a problem, okay? And what's, what's brought us here is compromise. It's the left and the right getting together and saying, well, that's bad, but, you know, if we just do it a little bit, you know, well, what happens is over time, the little bit turns into a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the next thing you know, it's ginormous and it's impacting people's lives. And so this is the, this is the problem in general with democracy is you have, you know, he talks about, investments in education and infrastructure. Well, first of all, the government doesn't invest because just by definition to invest, you have to expect a return on your investment and the government doesn't expect a return on its investment. It just spends money. 
So in, in much of the infrastructure and education that took place in this country early on when, when we did have a, a free republic was, was handled without the public school system, was handled without public spending on infrastructure. And so, you know, it's, it's only now that we, we think that nobody can build the roads unless the government's involved or nobody can educate the children unless the government does it en masse. And the reality is, I don't care what you say, even though everybody goes to school, you still have about only 20, 25% of the population getting educated. Well, why do we do that? Why do we spend money to send all the kids to school when we know that only about 25% of them are going to get any kind of education and the rest of them, you know, are just not going to learn anything. I, I don't know why we do that, but we continue to throw money down that rat hole. And I think people are, are sick of it. They're sick of looking at their money being whittled away by government and there's no accountability. Things don't ever get better. Politicians come and go and the status quo just stays. And that's, that's that all starts with compromise, with people negotiating and settling for something other than what the principle dictates. That the rule of law and constitution can be of diminished value relative to power, such as in the elections, neither side accepting losing, such as the Supreme Court makes rulings that are not followed by states, such as population moving from one state to another because the values in that other state are more there. And so then it becomes a make me type of situation. Rather than saying, what is the law? It says, make me do that thing. And now when we lose that kind of rule of law and respect for the whole, I think that's a type of civil war. When you watch that, who knows where that leads? It could lead to violence. You know, this was the beauty of federalism in our country. The states were sovereign. The people of the states were sovereign. And if they had customs, now forget about slavery, okay? We're not talking about slavery. But if they had a certain way of life that they were used to and they liked and that worked for them, they could further that. They could continue that. Where, where we really started to go wrong is when the the federal government, the national government, or what they used to call the general government, got more and more powerful and, and was encroaching on that state sovereignty and telling the people of those states how they should live, what they should and shouldn't do. And, and this, is, this is what creates this make-me kind of attitude that he has. You know, people that, that grow up in New York are different than people that grow up in Alabama. They have different values. They, they value things differently. Uh, that's not to say that they can't get along. But if you've got people in New York trying to make people in Alabama live like people in New York, well, you're going to have this, this problem, this make-me problem. And this was the beauty of federalism. They, the, the founders recognized that, well, for one, that these territories like Virginia and Massachusetts and New York, these were states just like France was a state, like Spain was a state, like Great Britain was a state. This is how they referred to countries. They used to refer to them as states, not countries. And they would call each other countrymen, but they used to refer to 
these big political uh, entities as states. And, you know, what's, what's happened over time is we've co-opted that language and we make state mean something else in the United States. We make it mean, um, you know, some subsidiary of uh, the, the general government. And that's just not what it was. But again, the beauty of federalism is it you didn't have this make me situation because you didn't have people trying to rule over other people or have, have uh, you know, some states trying to use the government against other states. Not until the Civil War. I mean, that's what that's one of the things that caused the Civil War, which is wasn't actually a civil war. You know, that's another thing that irritates me is people call it the Civil War. A civil war is when two entities are fighting control over the whole. Okay? So that would be like the the North and the South fighting in the United States because they both wanted control over Washington. That's not what was happening. What was happening is uh, some southern states were just trying to leave the Union. They just wanted out of the arrangement. And, of course, Lincoln famously said no. He had the Gettysburg Address, said, this is a Union. Uh, I'm going to make it stick, even if I have to kill you know, a half a million people. And that's what happened. <laughs> so, you know, this is, uh, this is just a misunderstanding of history. A lot of people have this thinking, and um, it's wrong. And, of course, it leads to more of this thinking. You know, if you don't correct a, cer- you know, a certain way of thinking, then it persists, and it, it, it creates other problems. And I think that's what we have. You know, the whole idea in the Constitution of holding arms, you know, and how many, oh, there are more arms than there are people, and so on. And when you get into a make-me mentality, you could get into an armed situation where a lot of people and guns and crazy things, I'm not going that far, but I'm saying could, let's bring that back a notch and talk about, can we imagine you and I, we know history and we look at today and it's different. Could we see the failure of following the rule of law and the constitution? So somebody gets elected and you now know who's going to be in the seat or you don't follow that and you get into a power-based situation. Yes, there's a possibility. And the fact that we consider that to be a significant possibility, I put the odds of something like that at about 40%. The avoidance of this, of what he's talking about, is completely within the control of the federal government. The, the federal government is the antagonist here. They're the ones running around, poking their fingers in people's eyes, telling them what to do, telling them how they should live, what they should spend their money on, how much energy they can use, what kind of car they can drive, hell, even what kind of toilet you can put in your house. I mean, this is the problem, and it's completely avoidable. All you do is you shrink the federal government, and you neuter it. You know, you just cut off the head of the snake. Or maybe you don't cut off the head of the snake, but you shrink it like those... You know, like those natives, you know, they shrink heads and walked around with them on a stick or something. You know, shrink the state to the point where it's insignificant and let people, let the states operate the way they want to operate. This was the beauty of America. And this was the principle behind America. And the further we stray from this principle, the more you have this make me society that he's talking about. 
It's actually very simple. But, you know, because people don't understand the principle or don't want or don't like the principle, you, we just end up talking around these problems and we don't ever really solve any of them. And it's because these people want their power. They want their power. They don't, it doesn't really matter if they're on the left or the right. They want the power. That's what drives them. History has also shown, and we see it, that people have to pick a side. They pick a side and they speak to us. So you watch in the media. Do you get unbiased reporting? You know, it's hard to come by. Even exchanges of thoughts. It wasn't like this. Even the issue, let's say, of, uh, you know, Disney in Florida. In the past, each should have a different perspective. You wouldn't weaponize, you wouldn't retaliate to the same extent that we're retaliating with exercises of power and so on. You have to benefit the majority of the people. He's right, it didn't used to be like this. And the reason it didn't used to be like this is people understood the principle. You know, they, if you read history, you read a lot about states' rights. Now, you know, people have come to make states' rights mean slavery. You know, oh, that's, you just want to have states' rights so you can subjugate people and make them work in your fields and all that kind of stuff. But states' rights was a real thing, okay? It's not just, it wasn't just something to protect slavery. It was a real thing. In fact, it would have been better if we had just never had slavery because we would probably still have states' rights today. Uh, slavery was a poison pill, basically, in our, in our founding, and it got rooted out, which it would have disappeared eventually anyway. I don't think a lot of people realize that slavery around the world was on its way out. There were, there were serious conversations in the U.S. about what do we do? How do we, how do we bring you know, the slaves into civil society? I mean, there were people having serious conversations about that, and, and they didn't really know how to do it because uh, there was no education. There was no, there was just, there was not a mechanism to help plug them into, to really bring them into society. But that was, that was actually being talked about. And so slavery was on its way out. There's no doubt about it. But the, the, the lack of knowledge of this principle is what leads to this polarization. Because people, you, what you, what you've got is you've got one side, I call them busybodies. These are people that want to tell you how to live, what to do, where to go, how long you can stay, what you can drive, what kind of toilet. I mean, they want to, they literally want to weigh in on every aspect of your life. And then you have other people that are kind of like, eh, I don't really care. Or, you know, I just want to do my own thing. And I don't really, I, I'm more of a live and let live kind of people, you know, person. And this is, this is kind of the, 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 the problem. And so when, when these busybodies push too hard, okay, they push too far, the, the, the people that are kind of self-reliant and independent and don't really want to make waves and just want to live and let live, these people, they kind of turn into the make-me people. Yeah, they, they don't want to be told what to do, right? So they go, yeah, you want to make me? And they want to pull out their gun and they want to defend their right to live the, their life the way they want to live it. So, yeah, I mean, this this is totally happening. But I think he misunderstands or, or doesn't want to understand. Like, like, to me, Ray Dalio somehow wants, he kind of longs for like the 50s, you know, when you could still print money and do all the things that we used to do in America and he could go get rich and it wouldn't be a big deal. I think Ray Dalio is kind of, 
longing for, you know, the control that used to exist in America without this polarization. Well, the problem is it's gotten out of hand, right? The the government is is literally, uh, I mean, we only tax like three trillion dollars, but the government's six trillion dollars. I mean, it's gotten bigger than we can support. So that creates this dynamic, in my opinion. It's narrowing on just by any of the measures since 1980, per capita income for the bottom 60% of the population has not risen. Uh, If you ask your surveys, it's a failure. Every system needs to be improved and modified and made better. And I'm a mechanic, so I just look at the cause-effect relationship. It is because there is an element in which the reinvestment of gains do not go down to create the basics. What are the basics? Here's all you need. Parents who take good care of you, a good public education system, and equal opportunity. That's all you need, as existed throughout history. You give those things to people, and by and large, you have a much more prosperous, you could draw the talent from wherever it is. Ray Dalio, you know, he talks about, he's a mechanic, he looks at cause and effect. But cause and effect without context it just it just shows you directionally how things are moving. It doesn't really it doesn't really ground you in anything. And I think that's the problem with just looking at cause and effect. Okay, A happened which caused B, which then caused C. You know, that's 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 fine, but you what what was A, you know, what was the context of A? I think that's important. For example, what I mean by that is he talks about all you need you know, to have a prosperous society is parents that love you, uh, a good public education, and equal opportunity. Well, where's where's liberty in that? Where's freedom? You know, I mean, he just didn't mention that. I mean, that's probably the most important ingredient. So, you know, I, I, I don't understand. First of all, public ed- education didn't even exist in America until 1947. Okay. Equal opportunity. What does that even mean? I mean, what if I want to play basketball for the Boston Celtics? Should I have an opportunity to do that? Where's my equal opportunity? Or suppose I want to run Apple for a few years. I mean, shouldn't I have the equal opportunity to do that? I mean, from where I sit, I don't have the opportunity to run Apple or play basketball for the Boston Celtics. So, Equal opportunity doesn't mean anything. Um, that's that's something that politicians talk about so that they can blame the ills of society on racism or bigotry or something like that. Um, you know, we used to live in a meritocracy where people, you know, that, that could do the best. We still have this in sports. For some reason, we still have this in sports. If you suck in sports, you're not playing professional sports. If you're a crappy quarterback... You're gone. I don't. I don't care how good looking you are. I don't care what color you are. It doesn't matter. You're gone. But you know it's not that way. We've normalized uh, meritocracy right out of the the general society. And the way we did that is by talking about race, about talking about bigotry, about protecting certain groups. Do, do, I don't know, you probably don't even know this, but like in a small company, you know, go to any small company, a company with less than 50 employees, you won't see anybody in a wheelchair. You know why? Because you can't fire somebody in a wheelchair. And if you're a small business, 
you have to be able to fire somebody that you hire because people make mistakes. You may have hired the wrong person. Same thing. You'll go to smaller companies, you won't see as many black people. It's not because the owner's racist. It's because black people are a protected class. And if you have to fire someone who's black, they'll sue you in court and cost you a lot of money. And small businesses don't have a lot of money to spend on lawyers. So every time we think we're doing something good for some protected group, we're actually making it harder on them. We're actually taking opportunity away from them. The only, the only measuring stick that needs to be used is can they do the job or not? Are they good at what they do? And if they're good at what they do, they should get the job. If they suck at what they, should, if they, suck at what they do, they should lose their job. The profit system alone is not good enough. The history of these situations make one worry about such things because the conflict and so on goes through a difficult time. I believe that we're at a moment in which we have a choice and it largely depends on how we are with each other. We being Americans. Americans and then we being, it could be Americans and Chinese, but we as humans have a choice of how we are going to be with each other. The world has more resources than it has ever had. It has more wealth than it has ever had. It has inventiveness that will produce fabulous gains, and that'll continue. But the issue is really, are we going to be dealing with that as a together society? It's very simple. Don't go to war with each other. Work together, right? Don't go to war. If you do that and you realize we're all in this together, and then I don't care how you get there in terms of that element. I do believe in thoughtful disagreement. I'm the art of thoughtful disagreement. I believe in win-win relationships, not lose-lose relationships. Look, I agree. You know, don't go to war. That's bad. But the, the problem is we don't understand what causes this conflict between people. We don't fully get it. And it's, it's actually really simple. It's just that people, uh, you know, are need to be treated fairly. They need to be treated with honesty. Well, how do you do that? How do you treat people with honesty? And how do you treat people fairly? Well, one of the ways you could do that, in fact, it's probably the most productive way, is just to treat people with voluntary behavior. In other words... Go to someone and say, this is what I have. Uh, I'd like to offer it to you. This is what it costs. Um, do you want to buy it? Or, you know, in other words, we have too much coercion in our society. And coercion is what creates this conflict. People don't like to be told what to do, where to live, how much to pay in taxes, especially when they see taxes being flushed down the toilet. Are money being wasted? Are politicians getting rich? And they're idiots. I mean, people are sitting out there going, that guy is an idiot. How is he worth $60 million and I can barely pay my electric bill? And I'm out doing an honest day's worth of work. What, what people perceive, and they're, and they're right, is that they're not being dealt with honestly. Government is not dealing with them honestly. Where does that start? Where does honesty start with the government? Well, it starts with the money. First of all, you got to have honest money. And honest money is money that can't be produced out of thin air because some politician wants to fight a war somewhere or some politician 
wants to go after uh, a political opponent he doesn't like or she doesn't like. So honest money is a key, key aspect of a voluntary society. It's, it's almost impossible to have a voluntary society if you don't have honest money because the crooks can use the money to coerce people. And that's what's happening. Uh, it, it's so sim- In my mind, it's so simple. And yet, we struggle with this. We listen to people talk in circles and circles and circles about what our problems are and how it's the Republicans or how it's the Democrats. No, it's this lack of voluntarism, or you could say it's an excess of coercion. That's our problem. And that creates the make-me society. Some people don't want to be coerced. In fact, most people don't. And my principle is, if you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. You need to worry. Because if you worry, you will do the things that prevent you from happening the thing you're worrying about. So, for example, if I look at the term civil war, and I look at the term international war, and I can paint a picture, a realistic picture of what that looks like, so the people really see it, like the people who went through those wars in history saw it. If I can paint that picture and then say, one thing we can agree on is we don't want that. Okay, we do not want that. So how? That's why I would like to see in the United States, I'd like us to see us get strong. I'd like to see a strong middle. Anybody who has gone through a war, this is true for history, you see what happens is the polarity becomes so great that there's no talking. There's just mutual intimidation and there's a fight. And you get beyond the stage and the middle gets lost. Can you see how there's really nothing to disagree with Ray Dalio here on? The problem is, you know, he talks about he's a cause and effect guy, but what he's not really getting to what the cause is. And the cause is government. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's the government. The government and its coercive nature, its, its ability to use dishonest money to bribe and coerce people into doing the things it wants it to do. I mean, do you really think we would be building all these windmills and all these solar farms and uh, just all this stuff? I mean, you can pick any industry. Do you really think the medical industry would have backed all of those you know, experimental shots to give to people? And, and, and would have not responded to the public when they said, no, I don't want to take it. It's experimental. If, if the government hadn't been there shutting down people, you know, getting them fired. I mean, there were, there, man, there were hundreds of thousands of people fired from these big hospital systems. Why? Because they were paying the hospitals to diagnose people with COVID and to assign their cause of death of COVID. How were they doing that? What, you know, why were they doing that? How were they doing that? Well, they were doing it by paying them. Paying them with what? Well, dishonest money. Money that doesn't really cost them. I mean, think of it like this. Would you pay somebody at a hospital $30,000 to declare, uh, I don't know, some random death, a COVID death, even if it wasn't? No, of course not, because you had to earn your $30,000, but governments paid that all day long every day to hospital systems all across America. And that's, that's just dishonest money at work in a coercive system. There's the capacity, a lot of capacity, to increase the size of the pie and divide it better. And I'm a capitalist, so I don't mean just handing out money wastefully, 
but I mean there's so many opportunities to improve productivity and produce opportunity in various ways that I just can't believe that we're not doing it and we could do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's so much productive capacity in the United States and the American people. We're, we're so innovative and so productive. But, you know, what, what's happening is people are seeing that productivity stolen away from them. He said since 1980, you know, productivity hasn't really gone up, hasn't really kept up with, uh, or wages haven't kept up with productivity. And that's true. But it's really not since 1980. It's really since about 1971. Well, what happened in 1971? We went off the gold standard. Okay. So there's, there's an element of this that I don't think Ray Dalio really wants to contemplate because he's part of this machine. He's part of this dishonest money machine. Now, having said that, I think this is very instructive, what he's talking about. And it, and it makes people think, it makes me think about you know, our political system, uh, but it makes me think beyond you know, the middle. I, I agree we need a middle, but how do you create a middle? Well, you create a middle by not agitating people, not irritating people, right? If, if you know, we got people that are irritated on the right, we got pe- people that are irritated on the left. Now they're irritated for different reasons, but it it has to do with coercion and dishonest money on both sides. Okay, that's a a root cause, as uh, Kamala Harris likes to say. Well, look, I've been talking for forty one minutes, and uh, I appreciate you listening and hopefully you know hopefully what i'm talking about is helpful and it's entertaining um you know i I, there's a part three that i'm that i want to talk about with ray dalio he talks about war and china and rising powers and diminishing powers and i think that's very important i think that's i think we're witnessing um uh, an inflection point in history where america is probably going to be passing the baton hopefully in the same way that Great Britain passed the baton to us, but maybe not, as Ray Dalio talks about. He, you know, we could have a hot war you know, with, with China. And, um, and so really we need to avoid that. That's, that's very destructive for both China and the United States. And I think that part three is, is, a, is a very important aspect of uh, Ray Dalio's talk. And, and still, you should go listen. There's, an hour, there's actually an hour-long um, segment of Ray Dalio talking about this. And you should go listen to it. It's really good. He's, he's very thoughtful. There's, uh, there's a lot more than, that I had to cut out. But, um, but look, you know, keep coming back. I'll, I'll try to put some more of these interesting conversations uh, into the content and talk about them here. And, you know, share the show. Tell your friends, tell your family, uh, send more listeners my way. And if you, if you're so inclined, go to your podcatcher and, uh, leave me, uh, a review.